Wilson! <laughs> Wilson! <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Texas has a long and exciting history, and in many ways, the written part of that history began with a man named Cabeza de Vaca. He made the history he wrote about. Today, we're going to take a look at the amazing life of Texas' first historian. But first... What's your favorite pecan-based delicacy? Well, I'm just going to say it's the simple candied pecan. Um, I don't like things complicated. Pecan, some pecan stuff's too sweet for me. I just like a light dusting of sugar, maybe a little cayenne for some kick. I love a traditional pecan pie. It's just perfectly sweet for me. Well, I like to use pecans as kind of a dusting or a frying, so like a pecan-crusted trout. Mm, delicious. Right. So we all agreed, pecan pie. Now, <laughs> moving on. The Spanish influence on Texas has dominated its early history. Though France laid claim to Texas in the late 1600s, Texas and most of the Southwest was claimed and controlled by Spain for centuries, and the region's early character was defined by the Spanish Empire. The colonial areas also influenced Spain, though. Much like the United States in later years, it became a place where Europeans were promised a new and better life. In the 16th century, the New World was a land of opportunity for the Spaniards, especially for the lower and middle class who wanted the chance to find fortune and fame. Cabeza de Vaca was one of these young men. While fortune was not in the cards for him, fame certainly was. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca was born around 1490 into a Hidalgo family, a class of Spanish nobility who didn't technically have titles. The origins of his name, which means cow's head and came from his mother's side of the family, are unclear. There's a legend that an ancestor, Martin de Alaja, was a 13th century peasant during the period of the Reconquista, the long campaign to retake Spain from the Moors. Uh, supposedly, he showed the king a secret path around the Moorish army by marking the path with cow's skulls and was knighted and raised to nobility on the spot. This story is almost certainly not true, uh, but there's doubt if Cabeza de Vaca is even descended from Martin de Alaja in the first place. Regardless of the origin of his name, Cabeza de Vaca certainly saw, thought that this story was true. What we do know about him is that he was orphaned as a child and began his adult life as a soldier in Spain's wars to control parts of Italy, and then later in a short-lived civil war in Spain. He served with distinction in both of these conflicts. He earned a commission as the treasurer and first lieutenant in a new expedition that was being planned in the New World, the Narvez Expedition. The Narvez Expedition was an attempt by the Spanish crown to lay claim to Florida. It began in June of 1527 when Panfilo de Narvez set out from Spain for the New World with 600 men, which included Cabeza de Vaca, and he was one of the highest-ranking officers. Narvez had been part of the conquest of Mexico and was a rival of Hernando Cortes. He was trying to secure his own glory and had a license from the King of Spain to take possession of all the lands north of Cuba. They arrived in Hispaniola, which is now the Dominican, in August, and their troubles began immediately. Rumors that another expedition had recently failed catastrophically reached the men, and they deserted in droves. Almost a hundred men went AWOL before they departed in September. Things started to look up again as the resupplied in Cuba, but disaster struck again when the expedition split and the portion that Devaca was leading was caught by a hurricane while in port in Trinidad. Both ships under his command sank, 
60 men and a fifth of the horses they brought were killed, and all the supplies they'd picked up in Trinidad were destroyed, leaving them worse off than when they had arrived. Still, Narvez regrouped and resupplied before setting out again, this time with only 400 men. Disaster would strike once more, and the entire fleet, under the guidance of a pilot of dubious abilities, was caught on a shoals for two to three weeks, depleting their already meager supplies before a storm raised the seas enough for them to get underway again. Finally, in April of 1528, the Narvaez expedition reached land in Florida near modern-day Tampa Bay, but they lost another of the five ships they had left. They made peaceable contact with the natives, but did not find the riches they had hoped for. Strangely enough, after dealing with each other on the first day, the natives abandoned their village overnight, disappearing. Nonetheless, Narvez was declared governor of the land in an official ceremony held by the officers of the expedition. The natives told him that the riches they were looking for were to the north before they disappeared, and Narvez split his forces between a land expedition and a sea expedition and headed off in that direction. Cabeza de Vaca protested this plan, which earned him accusations of cowardice from Narvaez. Nonetheless, he offered de Vaca command of the sea portion, but de Vaca turned it down as a matter of honor because of the accusations. De Vaca and the rest of the men in the land expedition marched for many weeks with little food before finding any people. They found a small village, enslaved the natives, and helped themselves to their food for three days before going to look for the seagoing branch of their expedition. They couldn't find them after an extensive search and actually would never see the ships of the expedition again. The next several months were a nightmare as they traveled up the coast of Florida from Tampa Bay. Their encounters with the different native tribes were varied and difficult. Some tribes would help them but would later turn against them. Others were hostile from the start. In other cases, the Spaniards didn't pretend to seek peaceful contact but merely attacked them in order to take their food. Narvez gave up his quest further inland around what is today Tallahassee and turned south, heading toward the coast. Hostile natives attacked them when they were chest-deep in the water of a swamp and weighted down by armor and heavy weapons. After taking heavy losses, they managed to reach dry land and drive off their attackers. When they arrived at what is today Apalache Bay, they found the natives knew they were coming and had deserted and burned the villages. By this time, the Spaniards cared less about riches and more about survival. They replenished what supplies they could before planning the next move. They now realized that they would never reach the safety of Mexico by land and could only do so by sea. In an impressive show of creativity and industriousness, the remaining men turned their weapons, armor, clothes, and even their horses into construction supplies and built five seaworthy boats. It took just over six weeks for the 242 remaining men to build the boats. They then cast off into the Gulf of Mexico on September 22, 1528. Only a handful of men would survive the starvation, thirst, and storms of their two-month voyage west across the Gulf of Mexico. It proved impossible to keep the five boats together. Narvaez's boat disappeared in a storm somewhere along the way, and the remaining men found themselves scattered across the Texas coast. Devaca ended up on what historians think was Galveston Island. Unsurprisingly, Devaca and his companions called it the Island of Misfortune, they used plant fibers and even the remains of their clothes to try to repair their damaged boats to continue their voyage to Mexico, but a large wave swept them away and left the men completely naked and at the mercy of the natives. Wilson! <laughs> Wilson! Cabeza de Vaca separated from the others, venturing to the mainland where he ended up becoming seriously ill. Believing him to be dead, 12 of the 14 remaining Spaniards set off overland for Mexico City. 
The other two stayed because they couldn't swim and were afraid of crossing the rivers and streams on the way. Nine of the ones who departed died from accidents and Indian attacks, and the remaining three, Alonso del Castillo Maldonado, Andre Dorantes de Carranza, and a Moorish slave named Estevanico only survived by becoming slaves of Coahuilitecan Indians. Meanwhile, Cabeza de Vaca had recovered from his illness and set himself up as a trader. He moved inland with seashells and beads of the sea, and traded with local Atacapan and Tonkawa tribes before returning to the coast with buffalo pelts and red ochre. These were both highly prized items by the coastal natives. He also sold his services as a healer to sick and injured natives, but he always returned to Galveston to check on the two Spaniards that remained. By 1532, one of the men had died, and he convinced the other man to leave with him by promising to carry the man on his back when they had to cross a river or stream. The journey went well until they reached Matagorda Bay, where a group of natives, probably Caracuas, threatened them. Cabeza de Vaca's companion turned back, and de Vaca was taken as a slave. It was then that he learned the miraculous news that three of his companions, Maldonado, Carranza, and Estevanico, were still alive on the other side of the bay. For unknown reasons, his captors agreed to take him to them. Cabeza de Vaca managed to join the other three men in captivity, and it would take another 18 months before they finally escaped in 1534. Given their experience with the coastal natives, they decided to head not south, but west, and they began a 2,400-mile trek on foot that would take them across northern Mexico and the American Southwest. During this trek, the ever-resourceful Devaca served as a trader, shaman, and doctor to the various native peoples he and his group encountered. In fact, he performed the first recorded surgery in Texas history, successfully removing an arrowhead from above the heart of a warrior in a village near what is today Presidio on the Rio Grande. Needless to say, this was an impressive feat at such a time and under such conditions, and many years later would get mentioned in the New England Journal of Medicine. They arrived in the Gulf of California around Christmas of 1535 and saw the first signs of their countrymen in the form of an abandoned horseshoe nail and a belt buckle that were actually left behind by natives. They traveled down the Mexican coast to the town of Culiacan, one of the northern cities of New Spain, and from there were taken to Mexico City. There, their exploits were celebrated, and they were honored by the viceroy. Two of Devaca's companions, Maldonado and Carranza, settled there, marrying rich widows and retiring from exploration. Unfortunately, the fourth surviving member of their expedition was not free to make that choice. Estevanico, as a slave, was given or lent to the Spanish viceroy to serve as a scout and interpreter on another expedition that set off in 1539 looking for the fabled cities of gold, Cibola. He was killed during the trip by the Zuni in what is today New Mexico. There is a persistent legend, though, that Estevanico made up the story of the cities of gold and arranged to fake his own death in order to gain his freedom. Cabeza de Vaca, on the other hand, sailed back to Europe, where he was heaped with greater honors by the king. Though the Narvez expedition was a failure, de Vaca and his companions' incredible journey over eight years and across the entire North American continent made him a sensation. It was at this time that he began writing his accounts of his travels through America as a set of memoirs, though they weren't collected into a single volume for another five years. This collection is historic, not only because it's the first book devoted exclusively to North America, but because Cabeza de Vaca writes with a great deal of empathy for the natives of the New World. Despite the cruelties that he had suffered at the hands of many of them, he also had many friendly interactions with others. He dealt with them as actual people with complex relationships. His time in Spain was brief. In the early 1540s, Cabeza de Vaca was appointed by King Charles V of Spain to serve as governor in Paraguay in South America. 
Cabeza de Vaca and the 200 settlers he was leading had a 1,200-mile trip ahead of them to reach their destination to help inspire his citizens, and because apparently he had not had enough walking, Cabeza de Vaca took the entire trip on foot and literally didn't even bother with shoes, despite the availability of horses that he could have ridden. I guess he got used to walking on the ground. (laughs) As he'd shown in his books, de Vaca had a surprisingly benevolent attitude towards the natives. This attitude would continue into his governorship. He attempted to implement many policies that would benefit the native Guarani that were under his authority. This did not sit well with the local Spanish landowners, however. Much of their plans in the New World revolved around exploiting the natives for their own personal gain. Only four years after taking the post, he was arrested on obviously trumped-up charges of mistreating the natives. Apparently in colonial Spain, treating the natives as though they're actual human beings is considered a mistreatment. Cabeza de Vaca once again returned to Spain, this time not as a hero, but in chains. He was found guilty on 32 different charges and received a harsh sentence. Cabeza de Vaca was forbidden from returning to Spanish holdings in America in perpetuity. He was also sentenced to five years in the Spanish penal colony of Oran in North Africa. It took a series of appeals, but eventually the sentence was commuted and Cabeza de Vaca spent the rest of his life in Spain rather than working in North Africa. His reputation was largely destroyed, though, and he died in poverty in 1559. Cabeza de Vaca's legacy has lived on long after his death. His book, The Relation of Alvaro Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, is considered the first European book dedicated entirely to North America. While the information and revelations it provides are invaluable, this work has also proved problematic to historians from time to time. Obviously, he could not write it while he was traveling, but rather is written from memory, and that leads to more than a few discrepancies, ones that he himself recognized but could not correct. The geography and timeline described in his memoirs does not always add up, and more than one historian has tried to tackle the difficult task of making sense of it and building a map. With the details he provided about native tribes, it makes him one of the earliest ethnologists in North America. The information he brought back to the Spanish crown also increased interest in Texas and was definitely influential in their later decision to protect their claim in the area. Well, when you when you got three guys, four guys that are your su- subjects walking around the entire state, yeah, I think that's a good claim. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> covered a lot of ground. Get off my land. Um, yeah, I I don't know if it can be proved or not, but. I think that uh, Cabeza de Vaca's journey across the continent was probably Tolkien's inspiration for all the walking <laughs> and the legend of the rings. Just because we're talking about people walking an incredibly long distance, we don't have to bring it in. Well, every he company. he walked more than LaSalle did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You call that walking, Frenchie? <laughs> yeah. Thinking about Cabeza de Vaca is interesting because when we talked about it in school when we were young kids, it was, hey, this guy's name is... Head of a cow. And you're like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and all this other stuff happened. But then you're like, but the guy's name is Head of a Cow, right? Yeah. Like you just <laughs> you can't slip out of that label yeah. when you're, when you're you know, eight years old in school. Yeah, but, you know, he's the one of the few that I, you know, remember studying in class when I was a kid. Yeah. It's, and it's up. part of it is his name. It's an easy name to latch onto. I mean, even if you didn't know what it meant, Cabeza de Vaca is a very, I don't know. It's a punchy name. Well, I've loved the story of Cabeza de Vaca for a long time. When I was, when we were all in junior high, uh, it was the sesquicentennial. You guys remember that. And the 150th anniversary of Texas independence. But there was a book that came out in 1985 called Texas by James Mishner. 
and he was a novelist and he he wrote these big epic sweeping stories and that's what Texas is it's a multi-generation uh sweeping epic of a book but the very first chapter is about a Mexican boy who is there when Cabeza de Vaca and Carranza and the other Estevacio, Estevanico, and when the four men walk out of the desert, completely naked, looking like ghosts, and that's like the first image that that the people got of these people. But and and Devaca's Cabeza de Vaca's memoirs back this up. This is not based on fiction. This is true, true. Right. This came from Cabeza de Vaca's memoirs. But I think what when you get to reading about Cabeza de Vaca, what really strikes you is the resilience that he showed but also the humanity that he showed of understanding his situation and the people that he was around. Yeah. Well, I mean, probably one of the reasons that he was able to survive and make that journey is because he didn't treat everyone as an enemy when he right. met them. Right. You know? Well, you say Michener's... Well, first, let me talk about Michener. <laughs> you say Michener's a great author. I remember him more as a prolific inventor of effective doorstops. <laughs> I was going to say, I've lifted that book. I've never read it, but I have lifted it. If you look at the Michener section in your local bookstore, you'd be like, this is a lot of dead trees. But I have heard good things about that. No, book. It, it's a, it's a, I, I've read parts of it. And here's the thing about the Cabeza de Vaca and this, this journey that's so incredible, though, is that you read it and you get the highlights. You, we get the cliff notes of the history. So it's like, well, he was here and this happened. And then he goes here and then they're there for 18 months, and then they're here, and, it, you know, you, the timeline is very difficult to visualize, just mm-hmm. the greatness of suffering of saying, well, you know, these next few years are going to be really bad, <laughs> and they're going to be followed by a couple more years are going to get even worse, Yeah, eight and years. then even worse. Eight years worse. he suffered his way across yeah. North America. And, and then you're going to get home, and then they're going to send you back, and then they're going to take you back in chains. It's really hard to visualize and to really comprehend 3600 miles of walking yeah like that's yeah, just it's hard you can't wrap your mind around it but then imagine you're naked well i <laughs> thought that but naked well i thought that song i would walk 500 miles seemed ridiculous yeah. on the outset but <laughs> but this scene you know when you're naked it simplifies things well yeah since most of it you're walking through is desert and then the sun's beating down on you and yeah well what are you gonna do what, no, yeah what are you gonna do sunscreen would be nice <laughs> but the, the 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 his journeys. So we talked a little bit about Estevanico going back with an expedition to find Cibola, and a lot of the the things that Cabeza de Vaca heard and that his men heard, he and his his guys heard on their way. Uh, they were told about these cities and these towns and this gold. Well, they were told third hand by people who didn't know what gold was for one thing, or had very little clue about what it was, and didn't really know what cities were. So a lot of the, the Coronado expeditions and stuff like that, which were failures in a sense of what they were looking for, were spurred on by that. And we'll see that. You'll see that if we talk about Coronado. I remember his friend Estevanico. I, I learned his name as Esteban. Yeah, Esteban the more. They, 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 he was called different things. He talks yeah. about that in his book that he called him Esteban. Another guy called him Esteban. It means Stephen. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, that stuck out of me when I first read through this. I was like, and Estevanico. Est- right. And Estevanico Esteban. is believed to be the first, first person of African descent to step foot in Texas. Yeah, yeah, I did know that. Well, now you know. Boom, 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 boom. Do you think they're only separated, they're not separated by that much time frame? 
But these early explorers, you know, take somebody like Christopher Columbus. They have sort of been elevated and in recent years has received a lot of criticism for his bad behavior with the natives. Mm-hmm. In And then you take somebody like Cabez de Vaca that's well known, but is not elevated to that same level. And yet far more prolific in terms of his interaction with the natives and much more even-handed how he dealt with it historically. Yes, and he he does deserve a different light shown on him. Um, unfortunately, he was kind of the exception. Yeah, well, I think in part of it is, like you said, he wrote all of his history down by memory, right. and it, a lot of it can't be independently verified. So it, right. it makes for a good story, and we want to believe mm-hmm. everything. But right. without that verification, there's going to be a lot of historians that are not going to say, right. oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Like, he's 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 sort of the ideal of what we really wish more of the conquistadors were. Yeah. And not so much the reality of what it but was. But if you, if you look at it, though, unless, I mean, how would he have survived if he didn't deal with the natives in a even-handed way? I mean, it was just him and at most two other guys walking across the continent. Well, you see how the Florida expedition turned out and right. didn't deal with the people in an even-handed way. And he was constantly saying, we're not doing things the right way. So even if, a, you know, historically we can't independently verify what he wrote, common sense kind of leans towards believing yeah. it. What's the modern consequence of Cabeza de Vaca? Why is it important? We got Spain looking at the area, which was Texas, especially around the Rio Grande, because they weren't too far up in Mexico up to that point. Um, and his interactions, not so much with the Texas natives, but more the the Pueblo Indians in New Mexico and stuff, than the next generation of conquistadors, the Onate, who went to New Mexico. Coronado, really that's the biggest consequence, though, is, is Coronado coming through Texas and through New Mexico and that really opened up the well, there you go. Spanish. So we should have a statue of this guy somewhere. I, there might be. There might be. Probably he did definitely, the, the place that he probably went to when he got sick mm-hmm. was probably Texas City. Because it's <laughs> right there across the <laughs> water from Galveston. Or yeah. Bolivar Point. One of those two places. <laughs> All right. Last thing, and this is just something this way. I do like the part of the story where he says they, we got real creative. We got real MacGyver. We yeah. got sword. We got uh, he's got some shoelaces. He's got some swords, but I like when they say they turned everything, including the horses, into yeah. boats. Yes. I don't look at a horse and go <laughs> that could be a boat with a little bit of work and a little bit of imagination. I'm gonna make you into boat. I mean, <laughs> yeah. What's your boat's name? Well, was- My boat's name is Cinnamon. <laughs> What's, Have what's a sugar cube? Yeah. What's funny about that is they thought that was as desperate as they were going to get. Yeah. And oh, they were then, like large. you said, then like you said, it just got worse. Like they, he talks about that he spent like three years and his diet consisted solely of oysters, cons, and prickly pear, uh, prickly cactus. pears. Yeah. yeah cactus, cactus fruit, which they call tunas. That was it. Three things that he just, they said that he said they would gorge on them. Yeah. When they had them, when they could find them. And then they'd go weeks without eating. Hmm. <laughs> they'd just drink water. So, yeah, how desperate can you get? Well, I mean, it sounds like the longest, well, most terrible season of Survivor ever. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the next Survivor, they should make them, they should do Survivor Texas Coast. Yeah. Drop them off at Galveston Or Texas Island. Gulf of Mexico, or Survivor Gulf of Mexico, yeah. drop them off on an island and say, build a 
boat out of your clothes and this horse. Yeah, and walk to El Paso and back. Yeah. <laughs> We'd like to thank our friend James Avendroth for helping us research and write today's episode. You can follow him on Twitter at Blackguard Press, and you can see his work at blackguardpress.com. That wraps things up for today. You can find our notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can also find our show and many other history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaman Two Ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.